Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of No Guilty Pleasures, a pop culture podcast. I'm your host, little-known cartoonist Ken Holtzhauser. I came to an epiphany years ago that there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. I know there are movies, television programs, and music that are seen as guilty pleasures, junk food for the mind, but there's enough negativity in the world without feeling embarrassed at our own entertainment. It was made to be enjoyed, so enjoy it. Today's episode is going to discuss something in this world that I dearly love, but maybe not necessarily in the way that I love it. Does that sound confusing? Ho ho! You've not seen anything yet until you enter the fiery world of 1965's Doctor Who and the Daleks. Hello, darling. It began just as you see here. Do you know what you have just done? You have transferred us in time and space, and I haven't even set the controls. No, I don't know where we are. We could be anywhere in the universe, and at any time. Yes, this is how it began. The adventure that started by accident, taking us out of this time and place to a lost planet. Who's there? Who's there? Come with us into that strange new world. I cannot guarantee your safety. But I can promise you unimagined things. You have invaded the world of the Daleks. Every move you make, we can see. They know we've escaped. They're cutting through the door. Come with us to the petrified forest. Meet the Thars, the blonde giants who have survived the monstrous rule of the Daleks. We must get to the city. They could have scanners here or anything. I'm going back. No, you're not. We'll be killed, but never defeat the Daleks. Daleks. Doctor Who, the brilliant science professor. The young man who triggered off this strange journey. The professor's frightened granddaughter. And the youngster who inherited her grandfather's adventurous spirit. Doctor Who and the Daleks. Now you can see them in color on the big screen, closer than ever before. So close you can feel their fire. So thrilling, you must be there. Father, look behind you! Stop the countdown! The bomb will destroy the planet! Us. 
I discovered Doctor Who back in the late 70s slash early 80s, and I'm sure Marvel Comics was a big part of my discovery of The Good Doctor. I saw ads for the impending use of the uh, the British comics in Marvel Premiere, and that was enough. It was a Walt Simonson drawing, if I recall, and that was enough for me to think, hmm, that looks interesting. When I did finally see the show on PBS, I was immediately enthralled. It was everything that I had hoped for. It was like a mixture of Sid and Marty Croft, Japanese monster movies, and of course all of the British television that an Anglophile like me was already watching PBS for. So I was thrilled. I went from dedicated viewer to lifelong fan in a pretty quick time. 1983 was an especially memorable year for me because that was the 20th anniversary of Doctor Who. There was a wave of nostalgia running through the UK, and for us in America, what that meant was merchandise. In particular, a tome that meant a great deal to me at the time, a book by Peter Haining, Doctor Who The Celebration, which was a book about the 20th anniversary of the show. It was a a historical document of all of the episodes, little articles about all of the actors that played Doctor Who. uh, And, of course, for me, as that kind of a fan, I couldn't get enough of it. I was eating it all up. The most interesting and surprising curiosity to all of this was the listings of two feature film versions of Doctor Who that were made in 1965 and 1966 to uh, sort of capitalize on what at the time was sweeping through the United Kingdom, a sort of Dalek mania, rather like Beatle mania, I guess, but I mean, it's uh, more pepper pot mania, I suppose. In this case, that suddenly became a very interesting item for me because it appears that the movie's star, Peter Cushing. Now, Peter Cushing, I already was very well aware of because I grew up on a steady diet of Hammer horror movies. I certainly loved his Van Helsing. And let's be fair, I'm a child of the 70s, so I know him very, very well as Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars. There were a few photographs, you know, black and white pictures of the movies and enough to give me a taste of what it was. And I already knew that the films were adaptations of the first two Dalek adventures from the television series. So no big surprises as to what the movies would maintain. I just knew I wanted to see them. And lo and behold, one night in about 1985, a television station WOR in Secaucus, New Jersey, Ran Doctor Who and the Daleks. I came into it uh, not at the beginning, but very close to the beginning because what you can't mistake the blue police box exterior of the TARDIS for anything. As soon as I saw it, I knew exactly what I was in for. I was thrilled to death and sat and watched a bizarre family movie <laughs> featuring uh, Doctor Who and the Daleks. It's just like it says on the tin. It's it's an it's a curious movie. Um, part of the problem was that when they were filming the movie, they didn't realize that the Daleks' lights on their domes would synchronize with their speech pattern. So the Dalek operators would just randomly flick the lights on and off. They would just blink. When they were putting the soundtrack to the film, then somebody pointed out to them, no, no, that's supposed to synchronize with their speech pattern. So they had to re-record the dialogue slower. 
Now, if you've seen Doctor Who, you know that the Daleks are not exactly great conversationalists. Now you take that to its next extreme, which is slowing all of their dialogue down to a crawl. Uh, And, which is super unfortunate for this movie, the Daleks handle most of the exposition of what's going on. They're the ones to explain the plot to our characters, punishingly slowly. The plot's pretty simple. It is standard Doctor Who, if you've not been familiar with what the Dalek story is. The Doctor and his friends go to the planet Skaro, where they encounter a group of aliens that have come through the aftermath of a brutal atomic war. Now, some of them, on one side of the planet, the Khaleds, have become hideous little squid monsters who, fl- who drive around in big, angry tanks and shout at the world. They are the Daleks. Their opponents, the Thals, have mutated into... Uh, uh, how do you describe it? In the film, they have mutated into Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars. They wear uh, an intense amount of makeup. They look... Uh, I, I, it's hard to describe what they look like. They're very glam. They're, they are glam rock 10 years before glam rock was a thing. They're inadvertently quite funny because they've become peaceful and somewhat fey. They're dying out. They don't have um, enough scientific achievement to grow food, I suppose. The Daleks, on the other hand, have a spectacular scientific city, but they live inside these metal casings because the radiation levels of the planet, they say, are too difficult for them to get around in. And thus, our heroes are stuck in the middle of this uh, conflict between warlike uh, gelatin monsters and peaceful makeup enthusiasts. This story features Peter Cushing playing human scientist Doctor Who. And in fairness, in 1965, there was no backstory for Doctor Who. There was no Time Lords. There was no inkling that he was an alien. There was no any of this. So this is not necessarily going way out on a ledge. And in the film, strangely enough, Peter Cushing's portrayal of Doctor Who is sort of a cross between the first and second Doctors. He's very, um, he's he can be kind of stern and a little bit of a baby, but he's also... Um, he's also giddy and childlike about things, and I do like his costuming with this sort of corduroy version of the William Hartnell costume. He is a human scientist with two granddaughters, Barbara and Susan, who has built a time machine in his backyard. The exterior of this time machine, which he is called TARDIS, looks like a blue police box for unexplained reasons. The interior looks like a garden shed with a lot of extension cords wrapped around it. Again, I know it's meant to look fabulous, but they really don't do much with it. Now, again, since I'm playing devil's advocate, the TARDIS as an interior set is not necessarily important to the story. The story is our heroes going out into the petrified world of Scarrow and meeting the Daleks. So, they don't really have to make the interior of the TARDIS look interesting. They don't really want to spend a lot of time in there. But, they could have done something. I mean, come on. In any case, 
other changes to the narrative have, um, aside from his being human and having two granddaughters, is that his granddaughter, Susan, is now very young. Roberta Tovey is, I think, about 10 years old in the movie, and she was, uh, she was particularly proud of her performance in the film. She and Peter Cushing got along great. Uh, they called her One Take Tovey. They would give her a shilling every time she got through a scene in a single take. So she... Uh, she was actually a very competent little actress, and when they came to Peter to do a sequel, that was really his one major request, was that she come back for it as well. So they are the only two characters that are in both of the 1960s Dalek movies. The Daleks themselves look great. They take advantage of the fact that this is a Technicolor film, so all of the Daleks are multicolored, they're, um, they're, they're a little taller, they've made the bumper at the bottom taller, they're very shiny, they've got... Uh, one of the more interesting things is that instead of firing a special effect for their guns, they fire fire extinguisher foam, which I'm sure was designed to soften the potential violence of it. But honestly, I think it's a really interesting visual. I like the idea of like a sort of a, almost like smoke pouring out of it. it. It gives more of an indication of fire than the television show ever does. Needless to say, that night, I was up very late watching Doctor Who and the Daleks, and I was giddy. I own both of the movies on DVD. They have since been released on Blu-ray. I don't know if they're available in this country on Blu-ray yet. I'll have to look. But they are absolutely worth seeking out. If you like the program, it's definitely a curiosity. It's not any part of the television series continuity by any stretch of the imagination. And it is... Um, I don't want to say dumbed down, but it's definitely more family friendly. The condensing of seven half hour episodes into a singular uh, two hour movie cuts a lot of the fat out of the, uh, the narrative and makes this a more coherent story anyway. The, uh, the second movie, Dalek's Invasion of Earth uh, 2150 AD, is um, it's a little bit better in terms of... Uh, what they do with the story because it looks like they spend a lot more time on location shooting but I have a real soft spot for this first one there's a lot of charm it sort of um, echoes the William Hartnell era of the show which I very much love as a fan and it's a perfectly fine family movie in its own right it's colorful it's not terribly scary by any means it's just a nice uh, old British runaround you know Help out the people, home in time for tea. It's everything that you would want out of just some silly Saturday entertainment. And quite honestly, isn't that really what we're all looking for? It doesn't even have to be Saturday. Doctor Who and the Daleks, 1965. Seek it out. I think you'll like it. And we'll be back next week for another episode of No Guilty Pleasures. Looking for something new and exciting in comics? Perhaps that other dynamic duo, The Quick and the Dad. It's a love letter to the DC, Marvel, Archie, and Harvey comics of my youth. Available now in print and digital from IndiePlanet.com. Within the pages of The Quick and the Dad, you will find supervillains, dad jokes, strange, exciting worlds, really goofy supervillains, and bad puns. I promise. 
Each issue will delight and confound you in equal measure. And it's available now in print and digital from IndiePlanet.com.